I think the first email about Black Lives Mattering I got on May the 28th. And I was like, wait a minute, what the hell is happening here? Whoa, whoa. That's a big organization. They use the word black lives and matter in an email and then sent it out to people who are also not black. What is happening here? And then more and then more. And then the conversation and then black makers and creators started talking about their workplaces. And it became very clear that organizations were terrified, terrified that they had a black person that would talk about what honestly it was like working in these places. This week's guest is Jennifer L. Williams, our first guest of series three, a leading thinker an advocate for diversity, equity, and inclusion. During this open, honest, and expansive conversation, Jennifer discusses why diversity, equity, and inclusion must be foundational in reimagining how we work, how we build teams, and move forward to a more equitable society. In part two, we dive into Jennifer's career and journey to diversity, equity, and inclusion, as she deconstructs how working in HR inside ad agency Saatchi led her to becoming a vocal proponent to changing the narrative around diversity and respect and how this set her on a path to her current life focus in consulting on diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. One that wants to appreciate the nuances of diversity and inclusion, Jennifer delivers an explanation with simplicity and clarity that frames it in the context of COVID, George Floyd, and the Black Lives Matter movement. We also cover how and when systemic change will emerge, and Jennifer explains her approach in consulting businesses in the process of transformation and the dynamics of the radical changes underway. Jennifer provides a clear explanation around the lexicon and wordplay between black, Latino, and people of color. I, for one, certainly learned a lot from this episode. I hope you enjoy the vitality and vigor of Jennifer L. Williams. These early years and the migrating from come to New York, you've left Howard, Yes. You've got a bachelor's in communications yes. and you've, I saw that you'd worked with some really interesting people from Eric Adams, who's the vice president of, uh, yes. of Brooklyn now working in HR, but also in social engagement Saatchi's. Can you talk to us just about what the factors were that sent you in the direction of HR and whether there was any serendipitous events that, that yes. set you on that path? Yes. So I want to be very clear. Nowadays, there is an opportunity to go into uni and get an HR degree that did not exist when I graduated. And granted, this has happened very rapidly. I moved to New York in 05. In 05, there was no such thing as an HR degree. In 020. In 2020, (laughs) there is an HR degree. I believe that this degree became available in like 2015 or 2016. And I was beside myself. Because like many individuals who are in HR, you don't go to HR because you planned on it. You go to HR because it fell upon you. Like, oh, order, duty, structure. This is your shit now. This is what you're doing now. You're like, I, I didn't ask for this. I, oh, okay, this is, this is me now? I guess, sure, I guess I'll do it. And then you craft and cultivate an HR career. I knew from very early on, understanding that I like making things make sense. And so ultimately, in some way or shape or form, I had to be an individual that had decision-making ability, <laughs> like, which is cute because you're out of university And you have to prove yourself in order to get the chops to learn how to be a person who is able to make decisions. But that, I wanted to jump across. I was just, I want to make decisions. I know better than everyone else. Again, I'm 20. You can't tell me I don't know. Of course I do. Um, So it was beginning in a manner where I began my work as an executive assistant. And, you know, I have so much respect for the individuals who are in that space and who do that work. The unsung EA executive assistant is the gateway and access between anyone 
and the person that they want. And a good EA is responsible for making the world as easy as possible for the person that is doing larger work behind the scenes. Mm. They don't get enough credit. And so I'm always big on, it's less about being very kind to everyone. And it's about understanding how granular and the attention to detail that you have to have to be able to make life easier for somebody else and the care that you have to have to do it and do it well. I'm grateful that I began that way. Mm. My actual introduction to HR where I took into account that it was something that I could take extraordinarily seriously actually began at Saatchi. My boss then and my mentor, Mr. Bob Wiesner, who I call MPD or my pale dad, um, or Elphil, we have a lot of inside jokes, um, made it very clear to me that he saw something in me in the ways that I was able to look at an issue or a challenge and then figure out ways to ensure that an organization was okay, but that also the people within it were also taken care of and were okay. And that's the way that I look at HR. Far too often when you think of HR, people very much believe that it's only for organizational gain, right? Mm -hmm. You're here to ensure that no matter what, the organization always wins. And I've always been one of those fight for the little guy um, there shouldn't be some level of opportunity that someone has over you to make you do things that they expect you to do without you understanding. I hate that. I hate the level of unfairness. I hate the fact that HR walks by and you're instantly afraid. Oh God, what did I do? Why in the hell would you want to feel that way when someone walked by? And further, why would you want to be the kind of person wielding that power to make someone feel that afraid of you? There's something deeply ironic about the fact that you discovered that inside an ad agency. I mean, I spent my life in advertising uh, and last big job in a corporate agency was here in New York at McCann. And HR in agencies isn't like an HR in a Fortune 500 company. Oh, it's not. And, it, and business is full of egos, mainly white men, that interdepartmental fighting where women aren't recognized, people of color, certainly not, and people that are diverse, certainly not that weren't that welcomed, certainly in the early part, part of the century. So there is that, it is unusual in a way that you discovered that, you got that taste for HR there and you found this person, you said his name was Bob. Yes, Mr. Bob Wiesner. When did you start? To, I mean, obviously getting an appreciation of the power that you could have to influence the health of an organization mm -hmm. in that role. Yes. But also, when did you start to become, I don't want to say, an agitator, but um, when did you start to become conscious that uh, and an activist for change in the area of diversity and mm -hmm. inclusion as it was back then? And where you and where are you vocal about it, Bob? Absolutely, I was. Absolutely, I was. I remember the agency world to me was very interesting because it is one of the only places where I understood the nature of the revolving door being something that was spoken about, yeah. like. People expected you to leave to come back. And I was like, but if you treated people well, they wouldn't leave. They'd stay and you could utilize all of their knowledge and they'd be happy and you'd be happy and you wouldn't have to spend an inordinate amount of money to bring them. Like, why not just do the work and be good people in the beginning so they don't have to do this thing where they return to you 10 years later because you are an asshole. That doesn't <laughs> 
sense to me. And I would always have that conversation. I was like, do you understand this is the only industry where people are okay with you leaving and coming back? Do you understand? It's like, oh, okay, I'm leaving now, but I'll be back in five years. No, the hell you won't. Who's going to allow that? You know what I mean? Like when you're gone, you're gone. That's so wild. And I remember just being like, okay, huh. What if we change the narrative? And then even further, I very much remember the conversation around money always being the driver. Oh, they're unhappy, yeah. but we're paying them. But money isn't everything, y'all. Like, how are you making people feel? I remember very early on, there was an organizational element of the agency and they were creative. I think they'd spent like days on a brief. Mm-hmm. And also agency life for the first time, I found like pots and showers and like things of that nature on site. And I was like, what the <laughs> Why would this be here? Oh, people don't go home. Oh, this is bizarre. I'm a go home, but this is, this is a thing. And it was very understood. Like, no, and you gotta, you just stay and bang things out. And I remember they're banging out creative and one of them, one of the people being really upset that someone didn't say thank you to them. And I was like, that's power right there. The acknowledgement that someone did a good job for you. That's human. And that is a basic need. The ability to tell someone that you appreciate the work that they've done. And that isn't felt here. And the answer is, well, they're getting paid. Well, no, but acknowledging someone did good work for you is more than money. Like, let's think about that. So I remember really thinking about what that meant and how the way that you interact with people impacts them. I'm also aware because the the function of DEI as a split out subset was not around as much back then. As an HR practitioner, I was an army of one and I just so happened to be a black woman. So all black issues came to me anyway. Hey, Jen, you're black. Why do black people do this? I mean, I can tell you, but we're also not a monolith the way all white people aren't a monolith or the way our Latinx people are not a monolith. But I, I guess if you wish, then, you know, this is why. Oh, Jennifer, how would you have a conversation about this with someone? Well, it's a little bit dicey. So if you're having challenges there, instead of looking at differences, you might want to look at how to have a compatible situation with things that are more alike. And, and that built out into, oh, now you're actually focusing on diversity. Now it's actually becoming a function of how you're able to actively engage with other people. And then here's the big if or the big thing. Diversity makes you money from a business perspective. Diversity is simply good business sense. You get enough voices who are unlike you. You're able to actively engage in doing the work to attract people that wouldn't necessarily use a thing because you're speaking to them. Then they're using your thing and that generates revenue and revenue is good sense and everybody wins. It was at that point I started really seeing a difference in how people were looking at what diversity could do. And at that point it was just diversity because we've Mm -hmm. taken that, right? First it was diversity, then it was diversity and inclusion. Mm-hmm. That it was DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Then there's a way that I focus. My focus is on diversity, equity. And, and now, you know, a lot of the focus is DEIB, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. They're all the same side of, mm-hmm. you know, of, of, they're all the different sides of the same point, right? But ultimately, it's ensuring that you craft a narrative and an opportunity for diverse individuals to feel seen, heard, supported in organizations where usually their voices are stifled. Mm-hmm. And they aren't made to feel as if they belong. Could you just talk through why, how that evolution happened? Yeah. From because I mean I mean I remember diversity being talked about way back in the last decade, and then hearing D and I, and then obviously yeah. there's diversity and equity and inclusion, and then intersectionality is not really a term that I've heard used that much in mm-hmm. in, in HR. Yeah. 
what were the key points at which the this changed that triggered the Sorry. expansion of it? And also, we're we're going through. I think just in in, in general, maybe we could talk a bit about this a little bit later. We've interviewed a lot of people about the impact of um, and the the potential impact, or there's already the impact of uh, mechanization and automation, and as artificial intelligence encroaches on business, there'll be even more need to really tap into our true humanity and our creativity and what makes us different as an organization. And will that be the point at which we don't even have to think about diversity, mm-hmm. equity, inclusion, and intersectionality? Because one thing that unites us all is our humanity. And the mm-hmm. one thing that will then allow us to all come together in an equal sense will be the fact there'll be something that will be not our enemy, but something that will potentially threaten our existence as humans in the organizational space. So maybe we'll come to that. I'd just like to put that out there as something where we should be aware of. So in a very real way, no, because AI is laden with bias and bias is laden from oh, yeah. those who are creating it. And if the standard bearer of that bias are white men, yep. uh, it's the reason why recognition tools don't work as well on me as they would with you. Oh it's yeah, we've had that I, conversation. It's yeah. unbelievable. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's why, you know, I would fit the description of a criminal, even if I haven't done anything by virtue of just my skin tone alone. It's also why AI has such a difficult time differentiating certain features. You know, the bias there makes it harder to believe that there will actually be some level of equanimity by virtue. And again, products and programs are doing exactly what they were designed to do. Yeah, You get in what you get out. And I very much believe that a lot of these programs are designed to do exactly what they are supposed to be doing badly. But yeah. It is. In the ways of why and how diversity has expanded, I have a bit of a cynical take on it. And it's kind of interesting because I find myself to not be a cynical person. But in in the speech that I have on my website and I gave that and I was cautioned against giving it. And I was like, nah, screw that. I'm going to say what I need to say. I'm the one who you invite to conferences when you want to have a conversation about truth, not about things that just make you feel good. I believe that you can do both. But ultimately, my time as an HR practitioner and the ways in which I look at both people and diversity, equity, inclusion, and intersectionality, if you're not having a real conversation, you're doing everyone a disservice. And there is a point where a lot of, I believe, well-meaning but ill-informed white executives mm-hmm. knew that they were able to get some runway out of having a conversation about the lack of diversity. Like the mere conversation, the ability to speak to understanding that there's a problem and talking about that problem, you get points right? There's some social capital that occurs when you're able to acknowledge that there's an issue. Oh, we've got to do things differently. Oh, we've got to ensure that we impact these numbers in a way because diversity is important. And us being able to do this is important. And having more of a workforce that is actually indicative of what's outside in the real world is important. Yet their numbers are still woefully at act like low. There's 3% representation of black individuals and maybe 1.5% representation of Latinx individuals and maybe like 5% of Asian individuals and the like. And these numbers were not moving. I was like, well, why would you want to fix a problem if you could continue to talk about it? Like that is its own reward. You appear actively engaged in doing something. And if you don't fix the problem, you continue to still have the same talking points to talk about this. It's almost brilliant in its insidiousness. Nothing really gets fixed, but you get to talk about it and feel good. My God, that's brilliant. Also very smart. 
the differentiation I think became the ways in which individual contributors to the space were seeing what was working and what wasn't. So I want to be clear, diversity is just differentiation, thoughts, ideas, socioeconomic status, whether or not you're a returning citizen, diversity of thought, diversity of culture. It's literally just difference. It has nothing to do with how that difference is being seen or supported in an organization, whose voice is being listened to, who's taking into account the barriers to entry that were or were not present for you to get to where you are. It's none of those things. The equity, inclusion, intersectionality, belonging, that work aids and assists in being able to craft more of a narrative of a whole person. And I think that that's why we've gotten from point A to point B. Cynicism aside, right? Mm -hmm. Because diversity just wasn't enough. Okay, let's find a lot of different kinds of people. That's great. But if you're not going to provide them the opportunity to thrive in this space, you've wasted their time and made it very difficult for them to want to come back into these types of experiences. You also wasted our time because you've proven the point. It's difficult to find people. No, it's not. You're lazy. It's difficult to make people stay. No, it's not. You're not crafting the ability for them to do it. But again, if I have the runway to exploit a narrative, I'm going to keep doing that. And I think that that's what brings us to here and to now and the difference, both felt and 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 seen mm-hmm. from an impact standpoint of watching the the protests that are now in, my God, week eight, I believe, yeah. or in, eight, in two months. Um, and they're not stopping just because the media has paid less attention to them does not mean that they've ended. They're nowhere near. <laughs> 15,000 cyclists out in Times Square. Yeah. I mean, like we're, this we're, weekend. Not, yeah. we're not done. It's not done. And, and yeah. understanding that the, the narrative shift, I believe why I have more faith in what is occurring now than any other time before is the way that it is driving people to listen. Like black people are no longer okay with the performative action of, okay, we hear you. No, what are you doing? How are you actually going to make systemic change and waiting for the response? Mm -hmm. It's good that you hear us, right? But, you know, and and I also make this joke about eight weeks ago, a lot of organizations and companies and white people woke up and realized that black people exist, like actually exist. Like, oh shit, they're black. What do we do? I very much feel like that happened. (laughs) It was like, uh, I guess we we talked, we, we, we send a letter, we let them know that we're with them. But don't say Black Lives Matter. That's a bit too strong. Shoot. We got to say Black Lives Matter. Can we say people of color's lives matter? No, that's still not good enough. Okay, we're going to read the books. But then how do we let them know that we actually care? I I got it. We'll hire a a, a diversity, equity, and inclusion chief. Oh, wait, but that's not good enough because anytime we put people like that in organizations, they're just figureheads that aren't able to do their jobs to begin with. Oh, you want real change. Damn. Okay, so what are we going to do now? And I'm literally watching this happen in real time in a matter of weeks. What has taken years and years and years to become a talking point is happening in a matter of weeks. I'm having white people who are talking about white fragility and apologizing to me for their privilege. And I'm like, I didn't even know you knew what privilege was. (laughs) Whoa, what is happening here? You know? And so like as a flashpoint, I think that now, especially with the work that I do, and the clients that I have, and the lens that is being utilized, the ways in which the work that is being done now is going to have reverberations in the future. I, Mark, I can't, I can't even wrap my mind around it. Like, there are times in this work, and if you talk to anyone in the DEI space, there's always a point where you know you're getting someone who just wants you because you're Black, and they can mm-hmm. check off a box. Hired a Black woman. She said things. We know what not to do, right? And There's also this thought that you can only be problematic if you are a very loud, 
boisterous racist. You have the hood and you use the N-word and you threaten Black people openly. And it's systemic racism. It's the quiet things, right? It's the microaggressions. It's making people feel as if they don't belong. It's all of those things that it's the death by a thousand cuts that actually equates to breaking people down. But there's an awareness now. At very least, there's a beginning of wanting to be clear and mindful of what these things mean and how they're impacting people and understanding that you can't hide behind the lens of, but that has never happened to me. So it's not something I should be worried about and changing that into if it's happening to you, it has to be something that I'm worried about because there's a level of disassociation inequality here and I want to get it. I want to get it. And so now I, I've never been more moved by a moment I've never been more aware of an impact. I've never been more shocked at the speed and rapidity of things happening. Like I, I, I tell you this happened, May the 25th was my birthday. May the 25th is when the video of George Floyd came out. We were rallying and protesting on the 26th and the 27th. I think the first email about Black Lives Mattering I got on May the 28th. And I was like, wait a minute, what the hell is happening here? Whoa, whoa. That's a big organization. They use the word black lives and matter in an email and then sent it out to people who are also not black. What is happening here? And then more and then more. And then the conversation and then black makers and creators started talking about their workplaces. And it became very clear that organizations were terrified, terrified that they had a black person that would talk about what honestly it was like working in these places. Then the dominoes started falling. Then you saw CEOs start stepping down. The EIC of Bon Appetit, the head of Refinery29, the head of the wing, like the head of a wing, like all of these people started, you know, leaving or being pushed out and conversations around what's being expected and how to actually support people best were happening. And I was like, is this really happening? I, I, I continue to call it the reckoning because it is disjointing to me that we've even gotten here, Mark. Like I remember day two and day three and very, you know, the white people in my life, I got money in my Venmo account and it was titled reparations. And I was like, that's, I get where you were going with this well-meaning white person. This is not the way, but sure. You just bought my Starbucks for today. Thank you. Someone sent you money in Venmo with the message reparations. Yes. Yes. And then sent me a very meandering long email about all the ways that their whiteness and their privilege has shown up and harmed me. And they were very sorry to be that kind of white person, which in essence, on the one hand, I appreciate your ability to understand where you've been wrong. And on another hand, it's a little bit disingenuous to center yourself and your whiteness in the space of I've done these things to you. I am so sorry. Make me feel better as a bad white person. So I don't feel like a bad white person. But that's something to unpack at a later date. Mm-hmm. The fact is that we got there. And I remember and I still remember feeling <laughs> I was like, this is a very difficult time to be black. George Floyd dying, and the only reason why I believe we're here is two things. COVID, shutting everything down, taking away entertainment, taking away distraction, and then there being this very viscerally large flashpoint of attention that had to be paid to a Black man who was made human because he called for his mother as he was dying. I don't care who you are. You have to be the most unfeeling asshole in the world to not have felt something. In his dying breath, he called for his mother. That humanized him to the point where people who are not Black were galvanized to march for him. It was like that was the breaking point. And it was a very difficult time. But I remember saying, like, this isn't even the hardest time for me as a Black woman. Like, this, this is not the hardest time. I remember there was a spate of 
police killings one after the other. There were like six in a week. And I had to go into the office like nothing was wrong because you can't have those conversations in the office. You can't make white people uncomfortable. They don't really care, right? They're sorry it happened, but it, it didn't happen to you because you're the right kind of black person, Jennifer. No cop would ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no one would ever shoot you. No one would ever accuse you of any of those things, knowing full well I've been stopped and frisked before. I get followed around in stores, right? It's 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 understanding that my education doesn't save me. My adjacency to privilege and professionalism doesn't save me. At the end of the day, I'm just black. Do you think that the Breonna Taylor and some of the other, the killing by the two white supremacists, one that was filmed as well, these other incidents contributed on top of just the the COVID and the lockdown. And as you say, that boiling point was when it just, it, you couldn't keep the pressure. I do think they contributed. I think one thing was the attention being paid because you couldn't distract yourself with yeah. going out or going to the theater. But I think the other part too, far too often black people, especially black people in America are told if you're a good black person, these things don't happen to you. Ahmaud Arbery was jogging in his neighborhood. Yeah, Rihanna Taylor, who was a decorated EMT, was asleep. Like you, you, you can't on the one hand say that if you are a good black person and a model citizen, things won't happen to you, then see these things happen to you and then not see how it reeks of hypocrisy. And also how it is very difficult to have to be the right kind of black person to be worthy of compassion from other people. Because there are a lot of not up and up people of all races that don't have that barrier to entry for you to feel bad about or to feel upset about when something happens to them. That's unjust and unfair. So given you've said that this has in a way has surprised you the way that it's just the momentum's built after the 25th of May, do you think that going forward, and I'm totally with you, I was out running yesterday in McCarran Park and there was a, an amazing protest, a combination of speeches and a silent protest happening there. And it just does, it does continue. It's not going away, but we have to see significant change beyond just some of the things you've been describing about from the the message you're getting in Venmo to the resignations. There has to be some genuine systemic change happen in organizations. Do you think that, uh, as you said, when you started to talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, intersectionality, it's just being good. It makes money. It's, It's good business sense. It's common sense. It's the way to create healthier organization ultimately lead to a better bottom line. Do you think that these events are waking up investors and it'll ultimately be investors that go to corporations and say, Nike, you can't just say that you're supporting Kaepernick. You can't just put out these platitudes. Look at your board. Look at the makeup of it. Mm -hmm. Unilever, Procter & Gamble. Do you Mm -hmm. think it'll be the, the institutional investors that ultimately start to dictate to these organizations to change, not just hiring uh, diversity, equity, inclusion managers, but to actually transform the makeup of the corporations themselves and the management and not just having someone that's at a a mid-level or one person on the board, but a, a radical transformation. Do you think that's, we're at the beginning of that? I cautiously say no, Mark, and here's why. From an investor perspective, Diversity, especially right now, is just very smart business sense. To be against diversity is to be against money. <laughs> like mm-hmm. to understand that we will boycott at a dime and then that will reverberate and craft even more issue for you as an organization. It's just a very real place. I think what will actively happen is that investors will start looking 
at the expectations that individuals who are utilizing their products that they push expect to then make those changes. Mm-hmm. I think it will start with an appointment on a board. I think it will start with an expectation of there being some level of differentiated leadership. But I very much also believe that it will be the continued pressure of more. One is not enough. One performative hire is not enough. No, that's what I'm saying. I think yeah. I think these probably these as you say these performative hires are happening. Yeah. I mean, I've heard examples myself from from friends in different organizations, even ACAS, the organization that that, that we host our podcast with, are are making steps. But they're. But I don't think it'll come from investors. I don't. I think it will come from the pressure that investors are feeling by individuals who are both in these organizations that are black and brown that are expecting more, as well as the outward outpouring of expectation that is also circling these organizations that will make these pushes happen. And I think that we're at a better point now than we ever have been mm-hmm. to see these kinds of changes happen and to ensure that individuals are in, are, are making the choices to craft a narrative whereby individuals who are diverse are able to do their best work, not in spite of, but because of, because they thought about it, because they've crafted a retention plan, because they're doing the work, because they're leaning into anti-racist work, because they are ensuring that they are crafting a solid and supportive space that aids and assists not just them, but individuals who identify as different. Can you talk about your holistic approach and the tools that you deploy and how you help organizations help uh, navigate or transform their organizations to be in a healthier space? Sure. And if companies were coming to you now, how would you counsel them and guide them and, and the sure. tools you would provide them? Because I, I suspect there's a lot, of, a lot of people in senior management uh, even asking their HR directors, what do we do? And they're, they're yeah. going, I better go and read uh, Tony Morrison or Bergen reach white fragility and get back to you. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's real. I think. And, and I'm grateful for the clients that I um, have reached out to me during this time and, and beyond my approach is always one look, Mark. I, I very much believe in the process of transformation. I don't believe in change. I believe in transformation, right? I believe in fully going from one thing to another. You go from a caterpillar to a butterfly. I believe mm-hmm. in the time that it takes. I don't believe that transforming goes from zero to a hundred. I think it takes steps. It's zero to 10. Sometimes it's zero to two sometimes, but those small incremental shifts add up to your overall transformation. I also don't believe in perfection in this work. And I always approach anything that I do with that. The expectation that you will get this perfectly right is completely unfounded and wrong. And the weight and pressure that you put on yourself when you expect yourself to be perfect. I've read White Fragility. I understand all there is to know about systemic racism. I have gotten it right. You have literally just scratched the surface of what it is that you need as a person who is trying to do this work to be better, both to yourself and to other individuals, especially in in regarding and interacting with Black people and with brown people. It is the understanding that much like someone who has an addiction that has recovered from an addiction, you will always be a recovering addict. I look mm-hmm. at privilege the same that's a, way. That's a, that's a great analogy, actually. Yeah, I look at it yeah. the exact same way. Mm-hmm. If, if you've had this adjacency to privilege, and again, a lot of people's entry into this space wasn't eight weeks ago, but a lot of people's entry to this space was because it was so jarring that you had to pay a level of attention and people were demanding it from you, right? 
And then it was, you have to navigate the right way. You don't want to say the wrong thing. You don't want to offend. You don't want to make a problem even bigger. You want to seem aware. You want to be an ally. You want to be all of these things. You want to ensure that you're perfect. It doesn't exist. Ensuring that this narrative of perfection is the first thing that goes away when you're doing this work is imperative to being able to do it well. Again, not doing it right, doing it well. And understanding that you will make mistakes tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Because just in the way that this movement is moving, your growth is also moving. Growth isn't always linear. And sometimes there has to be a very clear assessment of what it is that you've done to become better at how you interact going forward. The eradication of that perfection is the great and the best baseline to actually build something that matters, that actually helps both you and the employees and the individuals that you want to ensure feel supported by you in the work that you're doing. Mm-hmm. I'm also very big on allowing my individual clients, both organizationally and personally, to know you don't get a gold star for doing this. You don't get a gold star or a cookie for being an ally. You don't get a gold star or a cookie for reading White Fragility. Your privilege isn't fed in that way. You don't win a prize because you did a thing. You're doing what you're supposed to be doing. You're inherently learning what it is like to be a Black person in America. My life, Mark, depends on my ability to navigate white spaces, to make you as comfortable as possible. Mm -hmm. I have to know everything about you. You don't have to know much about me. But in order for me to be effective at what I do, respectability politics come into play. I have to wear the right things. I have to say the right things. I can't, you know, rub up or, you know, ruffle your feathers or, you know, I have to ensure that I'm kind when I talk about things like racism. So you listen to me. I can't be seen as angry or else my message gets diluted and I can't possibly be as serious. All of these things are happening in my brain in real time when I'm having these conversations. You think that'll change? I think that there will be more of a conversation around why it needs to. Because I can't see why you shouldn't get angry. Being angry as a black woman already puts you in a place whereby people challenge what you say as opposed to listen to why you've said it. That is yeah, been my practice. But what, what I'm saying is that maybe that will start to change. Well, I mean, maybe. again, I, I hear you, but I, I dare say that in order for it to change, we have to even look into the dynamics at play that make people feel that. Powerful mm-hmm. black women make people uncomfortable. They just do. So being able to unpack the why around that is a really good beginning of a conversation to be able to turn down that rhetoric and, you know, no, I'm not angry. I'm passionate. I will always be passionate about things that matter to me. And just because I'm not saying this in a tone that makes you comfortable doesn't mean that you immediately get to tune me out and label me as angry or label me as someone not worth listening to because I am not pleasing to you. here. And we can start having conversations about it. Oh, you know, I said this thing and you immediately tuned me out. You were immediately uncomfortable. Let's talk th- about why. I think we're in, I think the positive part of the positive change that's underway, and we're not sure where this is all going to go because of COVID, because what it's done is it's made people that have been uncomfortable with ambiguity and change, accept that, that is the world we're living in now. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that it's funny. We had a friend, Corey Cambridge, who's another podcaster and he He's, he's a guy that actually works at ACAST and they hired him the day before the pandemic started. And he's from West Virginia. Yeah, six foot two, larger than life, charismatic, as he says, six foot two, charismatic, happy, go lucky black man. But he said, people look at me and I'd be careful what I say because I can scare them. Yeah. 
I think, but that's that's ridiculous. What you know, people have got to get used to, and start to confront their own biases, whether they, you know, wherever they're coming from. We've all got to, everyone's in a process of transformation to the world that we're that COVID has uh, has unleashed on us. Mm-hmm. And if it is, and I think I've said it before, you know, that life happens for us, not to us. And this is life happening for us to help us move into a better place as humanity and prepare us for the world that we're approaching, whether it be, you know, AI uh, that's been developed by white engineers or, or, in, or male orientated, uh, lacking in the, the cultural diversity that's needed. But all these things have to change. So if we are in a cycle of change, and this is just the beginning of it, I think people have to accept that discomfort is just part of the emotion that we're going to have to live with. And living with ambiguity is what we, are, we better get used to. Otherwise, you're going to have to go and do something about your life. And, and that's just the reality. I agree. Um, I mean, again, I very much feel like now there's nothing like now, Mark, there's nothing like this time. There's nothing like the, the feeling of robust opportunity that the now is providing. People are listening. People are moving. People are doing, people are educating themselves. Like this is where real transformation can happen. And I've never felt like this. Could you give any tangible examples of positive things you've seen happen? As a result of this, where you can call out and say, oh, yeah, this is a really good example that other people should take note of. Sure. Um, I'm seeing a renewed call. And I say this both in organizations that I do work with, as well as organizations that I follow because I utilize their products. A renewed call to ensure that inclusivity exists at every level of the organization. I say it very often. There have been times where I have been the highest of the high in a certain organization in a director level or in a managerial level or in a VP level. And I know what that means. I can't attain something if I can't see it. Going to a place and seeing a black VP as a black person lets me know that I too can aspire to get there. Going somewhere and not seeing anyone past the level of manager be black inherently says quietly, tacitly, that's not for you. You can't get there. It's not for you. So there being a renewed effort and push to ensure that one, there's a level of ascension that can happen to anyone and everyone, right? Because talent deserves to be able to move forward. But also there being a renewed push, let's look at our pipelines. The thing that I hated the most hearing, and it bristles, uh, I bristle so hard, the, the talent isn't out there. It's not true. And I said this earlier, you're lazy and you're not looking for it. If you continue doing what you've always done, you will get what you always have gotten. If you're utilizing lazy pipelines that don't incorporate individuals who are of diverse backgrounds and candidature, you cannot then be surprised when you hire the same cisgendered white man. And you also can't use that as an excuse as to why you can't find something different. Mm-hmm. It's up to you to do it. And I'm watching a lot of organizations in real time make it up to them to ensure that they are doing the work to find talent, which isn't hard. <laughs> it exists and it's there. And there's so many different ways in which to engage it. But engaging it, and ensuring that there is a very clear path to understand why and what is important. I'm seeing a lot more of that, and that gives me a lot of hope. I mean, I'm also seeing people, and this is a small thing, (laughs) but it's a big thing as well. People, especially white people, and their discomfort with the word black. Mm -hmm. So I'll, I'll be clear, a lot of times people will mean black and they'll say people of color. Well, that's... 
that is it's funny. It's a conversation we've interviewed recently. Um, Marcus Miller, brilliant, who's written a lot about yeah. his thoughts on the Black Lives Matter movement and how it's in a way being co-opted by the the right to a degree to be used to manipulate the elections. Yes. We interviewed uh, three guys last week, one of which was um, Alan, but he was he- head of security, Bank of America. Okay. And, they, and he and these two other, uh, they're all diverse backgrounds. One's British, one's American, mm-hmm. a white American, white British, and Alan is black American, but they're all gay and they're all setting up an investment company to invest in diversity and people, minorities and women and people, as I say, people of color. But the one thing that of all these interviews I'm having with different people, do you use African-American? Do you use the term black? Do you use the term people of color? Yeah. Do you yeah. use POC? What, what's culturally relevant? And so you're sort of constantly going, oh, okay. Yeah. And you just have to sort of read the situation. So yeah, that, I find that confusing myself because I, even if I go to the UK, it's different in the UK than it is here. Yes. But Cristina Jimenez is came from Ecuador, Ecuador from Quito. She would reference people of color, diverse people of color, and diversity in its broader sense. But it's yeah, I mean it's a yeah. I don't know where I'm going with that, but I, I do recognize that the, the, we have to yeah. think no, it's, carefully. It's real, yeah, it's real. So, and again, I tell people again, and I remind people, black people are not a monolith, right? Yeah, I appreciate being. I'm black. I'm Afro Latina. My mother is Panamanian. My father is black. So I recognize both the Afro-American and the Latinx parts of me that make me me. But mm. from an identity standpoint, I am Black with a capital B. Yeah. And you cannot offend me by calling me Black. The term of lexicon in public opinion would utilize Black more, but also understanding you could very easily find a Black person that's like, no, please refer to me as African-American. And understanding that you have that choice. The issue I find is when you're using people of color because there's a level of discomfort with calling people black. I'm like, no, it's what I am. Mm. Just say it. Yeah. People of color is people of color. That's why it's BIPOC, black, indigenous, and people of color. You're either talking about there's, black people or you're talking about people of color. It's brilliant. How the term people of color got co-opted because that actually meant something and was crafted and created by individuals who are adjacent to black people, but now it's turned into another catch-all term. So it's a lot of wordplay. But ultimately, it's all about the desire to belong, to be spoken about in a manner that empowers you. There's a great podcast I was listening to today. There's a British rapper called Scroobius Pip, who's white. Um, Scroobius Pip, I'll send you a link to it. He has some great, wonderful guests. It's done very much, very British focus. He has some American guests on, but he had a, a British black comedian on, incredibly eloquent, intelligent comedian. And he was talking, and it's, it's really worth listening to, even how he's talking about how British culture has evolved dealing with race. But he called out something I'd forgotten about. But in, you know, in a country like Britain, you've got very pol- a polarized country between what's the North like and what's the South. And so in Scotland, for example, when I grew up, you didn't see black people. You mm-hmm. had ca- Catholics and Protestants. You got class-driven, working class, middle class, and upper class. And where there's violence, it's white violence between white underprivileged people forced to fight each other because they're denied education by the privileged class. But in the South, where obviously there was mass migration coming from the Caribbean and British colonies and Pakistan and Uganda, 
you've got a really interesting sort of diverse class. But and he was, when I remember this when I first went to London to work, you used to see signs that used to say, where you go looking at apartments, or flats, as we called them, to rent. And they would have signs out there saying, no blacks, no Irish, and no dogs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the, the same way you get grouped into there. You go, can you believe it? I mean, the way that the Irish <laughs> and dogs all put in together. And that, that, that existed 20 years ago. So, you know, you just suddenly go, wow, we have come a long way, but we've got so far to go still. And there's an understanding that both and it, can exist in the same space. And it is this the sense of you're saying, when I asked you, you know, about, you know, are we making great strides and saying, no, we're just, we are on this massive journey. Yeah. It's I still mean, so Mark, even just looking at language, I, I had this conversation yesterday. I was a, a part of an AI panel that yeah. looked at medical disparity. And I also do a lot on algorithmic violence and how algorithms and data uh, and bias disproportionately impact black people and people of color. Yeah. And I just want us to look at words because words mean things. Black lives matter. Not that they're important, not that they're more important than something that they literally matter. That is the lowest bar that you can set for a human life. And that is what we are fighting, Mark. The opportunity to just matter. And so understanding that more and more that is something that is occurring and people are having those conversations and understanding is one thing, but also being really aware. We're just at mattering. We just want to matter. <laughs> like, I just want to be able to subsist in a world that affords me the opportunity to live. Mm-hmm. And I'll take it one step further. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Black people are just at life. Barely. There's another video. We've got a, a client and she's got a friend who's another psychotherapist client who's black uh, called Dr. Buki. And I can't remember Buki's second name, but I saw her do a talk and she played a video of this girl who was angry. And the one thing that jumped out at me from this video, which she was playing in one of this interview she did about the whole movement was this girl said, white people should be lucky that we're just looking for equality, not for justice. Yep. Yep. And that really struck on that that's it. That's what people should be aware of. Yep. On that, let's get to the quick fire questions. With so much, we maybe we're gonna to have to do another follow-up, but because we've got um six minutes. So I'm gonna be very quiet. I'm just gonna do a few of these. What okay. principles what principles do you stand by? Strong opinions loosely held, don't be an asshole, always eat the cake. Say that again. Strong opinion loosely held. Yeah. Don't be an asshole, always eat the cake. I like that, but what do you mean by always eat the cake? There's always cake available. There's always a treat available. There's always something that's sweet to life, whether it be tangible or not. You always eat the cake. You always do the shit that makes you happy. You always do it. Always. No matter Love what. It. Always eat the cake. Love it. Uh, what hard choices have you had to make that might have been tough at the time, but turned out to be the right decision? Oh, uh, moving to New York. Moving to New York was ultimately, it made no sense, Mark. It was stupid. I didn't have real job, a real job, didn't have a job. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. It's the best thing that I could have ever done with myself. The uncertainty crafted a sharpness that I didn't even know that I possessed. I will do it over and over and over again. Okay. Aside from diversity, equity, inclusion, and intersectionality, what's the one problem we need to solve? Ooh, famine, famine and hunger. I've always had a problem with understanding that there's more food than people could eat, but by virtue mm. of destabilizing people, there's a narrative whereby certain people deserve certain things and others don't. Everyone deserves food. Everyone deserves shelter. Everyone deserves a shot at life. 
okay. barrier, bare minimum that needs to be solved. It's not that we don't have enough. It's that the people that have access to and the people that don't have access to. Food security, sustainable development goals, number one. Four people from history you could invite around for dinner to help you change the future, to make it better. Who would they be? Ooh, dead or alive? Dead or alive. Christine Amanampour from CNN, the reporter, because she's damn amazing and one of my yeah. favorites. Um, shit. <laughs> um, huh? Oh, God, yes. Absolutely, Keith would be there because there'd be a level of visionary thought that would be absolutely amazing. That's two very much alive people. That's two very much alive. So now I got to like dig deep into the vaults of dead. Plato. Mm-hmm. Plato would definitely need to be there because I like a little bit of, I love the ability to think about the things that I'm thinking about. And always philosophers make you dig deep into the what behind the why and the pathos and ethos of what you're doing. Yeah. And the fourth, Billie Holiday, Lady Day. Excellent. Both her creativity is unmatched in the ways in which she leaned into the civil rights movement. And ultimately, in spite of many of the things that she did that crafted her demise, she was so linear and so focused on ensuring that there were differences and changes made for Black people, especially Black women. Okay. Your advice to someone that's got a dream, a goal, an ambition that's been told, forget it, that's impossible. Be very sure that you're okay with being uncomfortable to get what it is that you want. And be very sure, sweet. sure that you define what uncomfortable means for you. Like for me, when I came to New York, there were some very real absolutes that I hit for myself. I know that there's shit that I can't do. I very much respect that there are people that can do it, but I know that there are things that I couldn't do. Great answer. I also knew that being here was more important than being comfortable. So my discomfort was par for the course. Oh, this is what I have to do to get to what I want, to get to where I need to be, to be able to ensure that what I see and feel on my insides can match my outsides. Let's go. Perfect. What's your go-to karaoke song? All by myself by Celine Dion. Sung off key. And it's possible. Yes. yes. Everyone's like, what the hell are you doing? Yes. Very loud, holding the microphone. All my friends are like, what is wrong with you? I'm like, but you're laughing. I've won at karaoke. Netflix, Amazon series, Apple documentary, film, anything you've seen that you think people should watch? Oh, God. I'm still very much in the money heist. Casa de Papel. Oh, watch it in so, Spanish. Uh, um, yeah. I- I love that show. I love people who are like, I can't get into it. I'm like, dude, but you have to. It's brilliant. It's intrigue. It's brilliant. I also love that this show was supposed to get canceled. And until Netflix picked it up and it became the biggest thing since sliced bread, these people put all this time into this show and they're like, it won't go anywhere. And then it exploded. It's so well done. Please watch it. I'm it- on the final episode tonight. Oh, yes. So good. I love that show. Okay. I love it. I cool. love- what book we like to offer listeners that come up with good comments in Instagram or on the website, what book should we offer them? Thinking Fast and Slow ah, by Daniel Kahneman. Kahneman and um, yeah. Yes. I feel like it is the perfect accompaniment to any conversation around bias. Uh-huh. So you can really unpack and unload the way that your brain actually works and you can understand how much of your brain is you <laughs> and how much of your brain is not you. That's a great one. And final question, who should we interview next? I believe you should interview Mr. Devon Francis of Yardy World LLC. Devon is a black queer chef, creative um, owner of both a creative space agency and also a delivery service. He is one of the most innovative individuals who I've ever had the joy and pleasure of working with. He's an amazing human and I love the way that he looks at life and makes it flavorful throughout, no matter what. Wonderful. 
Wow. Okay. Well, we'll uh, we'll follow up with you and and get the introduction and look forward to that. Okay. Well, I could have gone on for another hour easily chatting, but um, we have to wrap up and thank you and acknowledge you. And uh, God, there's so much we could sort of uh, acknowledge that's come out of this. I think just reflecting on what you said, what really comes across is your care for people. That's a, a genuine, heartfelt passion to care and to help people in, just grow and learn. And the, the, you're clearly a very mindful person as well from everything you've said and considered. And your your passion for the your driving purpose in life. And for as you started the interview, you said humor. It really comes across. It's this energizing humor. I think you might need to sort of show a little bit of that anchor at some point, though, because uh, a few people need to hear it and feel it. But I think balanced with your infectious humor, I think um, there's people should learn from you and see you as an inspiring character in this movement. So I wish you all the best and look forward to following up. I received that. Bettina, I received that. Thank you so, so much. I have so enjoyed going backwards and looking backwards mm. to really get a clear narrative and framing on how it moved <sighs> forward. This has been amazing and i'm so grateful both to keep mm-hmm. to making the introduction and also for the opportunity to do this and do this with you and well thank you so much for your time really appreciate it and um will i look forward thanks to a lot following up. thank you okay bye-bye Bye. if you like the show please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us just go to itunes spotify or your favorite podcast player to listen and subscribe This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKaylee and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time.